0: Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Biden is taking heat for his protestations against taking territory by force in a U.N. speech as the U.S. illegally occupies the oil fields of Syria. Also, Russia begins implementation of its partial mobilization. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Regis Tremblay. He's an American citizen, a movie maker who lives in Crimea. Regis Tremblay, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
1: Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Let's start here. You know, we're reading in Western media that you know people are in the streets. There's mayhem, madness, and pandemonium, and the Russians are all people are all upset about the mobilization. You are in Crimea, in Russia. What's the status of the mobilization? What is the reaction from the uh, Russian people?
1: Well, first of all, uh, that's all United States propaganda. <laughs> The fact of the matter is there have been very, very small protests against the mobilization. That's not surprising. Uh, You know, a few hundred people in Moscow, uh, a few hundred people in St. Petersburg or other cities, this is really insignificant. But this is how people have to understand what's going on here in Russia and Ukraine. Since 1917. During the Soviet era, Ukraine and the rest of the Soviet republics were all one. There was intermarriage between, Ukraine, between all of the republics and Russia, but especially between Ukraine and Russia. These people have brothers and sisters, husbands, wives, grandparents, grandchildren on both sides of the border in this conflict. None of these people want to see this bloodshed. Of bloodlines. And so it's extremely important to understand how the Russians view this, how Russian people view this. They do not like to see their brother Slavs die. And so it is completely understandable why men, and there are many Russian people who are not happy about this, but who support the Russian Federation in this special intervention in Ukraine. that That's really what's going on. It's also been reported that there are deserters, Russian young men or men of military age who are trying to flee the country. Um, you know, when I read this, it reminded me of the Vietnam conflict. That was my era when thousands fled to Canada, to Mexico and other countries to avoid the draft. When Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali say, I ain't going to go fight over there 7,000 miles away to kill no Viet Cong. They ain't done nothing to me. Well, this conflict in Russia is very different from that. Ukraine is not a thousand 7,000 miles away. As I mentioned just earlier, these are brothers and sisters, they're families, and people need to understand that. I'm glad that you've put it in that
2: context, that people need to understand this from the Russian perspective, because so much of the analysis and the prism through which this is viewed is being viewed through the American perspective. For example, the slow, methodical, almost surgical manner in which Russia has engaged its military up to this point is very different and the objective is very different from the narrative that the United States is trying to present. So when you step back and you look at this from their perspective, your basis of analysis is going to be different because the goals and objectives are different. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, I just had uh, Scott Ritter on my show this evening. We just finished a few minutes ago. He made this point and made it very, very clearly that the Russian objectives are clearly very different than what is being portrayed in the United States as being weak, as having lost, etc. However, with this recent deployment of another 300,000 troops and Ritter believes there might be more, this is a game changer. Russia now is beginning phase three of this conflict in Ukraine, and I believe you're going to see the gloves come off once Russia moves the pieces on the chessboard. It's going to take time to deploy these 300,000 people in positions all along the front lines. So things have really changed with uh, President Putin's speech and his deployment of another 300,000 troops to uh, Ukraine.
0: Russian diplomat slams Biden's UN address in TASS. Joe Biden insisted that Moscow had made overt nuclear threats against Europe and displayed a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. The interesting thing about it is I read the article, and basically, Regis, if I have a baseball bat, and I say, Regis, if you try to shoot me, I will protect myself with a baseball bat. That's not a baseball bat threat. That's simply saying I'll protect myself. If you don't attack me, I won't have to use the means I have to protect myself. But the spin machine has turned it into as though Putin just said, you know, I think if I'm in a bad mood tomorrow, I'm going to nuke you guys. Your thoughts on the this comment
2: before you respond, Garland, can I read exactly what he said? Sure. Yeah. Good idea. Washington, London, and Brussels are openly encouraging Kiev to move the hostilities to our territory. They openly say that Russia must be defeated on the battlefield by any means and subsequently deprived of political, economic, cultural, and any other sovereignty and ransacked. They have even resorted to the, to the nuclear blackmail. I am not referring only to the Western-encouraged shelling of the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, which poses a threat of a nuclear disaster, but also to the statements made by some high-ranking representatives of the leading NATO countries on the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons against Russia. I would like to remind those who make such statements regarding Russia that our country has different types of weapons as well and some of them are more modern than the weapons NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. And, and I, I read all of that because I think the context
1: of that statement is very important. Well, I agree completely. Uh- you know, Putin and, and the Russian uh, Federation are basically saying, we will do everything we can to defend the motherland. I, I don't know anybody in America who would say, if my country were being attacked by an outside invader or threatened with nuclear war, I don't know if there's an American alive, that wouldn't even pacifists, who wouldn't say, I will hold the line and defend my country. Pete Seeger even sang about that. Now, in terms of Biden and what he was saying, it's so disingenuous. It reminded me of when Obama uh, went before the United Nations General Assembly and said, we are the indispensable nation. We are the exceptional nation. We will always be this. And I will use unilateral force to defend our interests. Biden is basically lecturing the world community about America willing to defend its interests in the world, wherever that may be. And to accuse Russia of holding the world as nuclear hostages is the most insane, disingenuous thing anybody could say. The United States is the only country that has used nuclear weapons, Nagasaki in Hiroshima, 1945. The United States is the country that has been threatening the world and Russia with nuclear annihilations throughout the whole, the entire Cold War. The United States unilaterally has withdrawn from every nuclear arms treaty they made with Russia since the time of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. The United States is the only country that has held the world in nuclear ransom for these 77 years. How disingenuous, how disgusting, how revolting that Biden, like Obama and Clinton and Trump, can get up in front of the United Nations and read the same basic script to the rest of the world. It, it's, it, it's beyond belief that they can still do this with a straight face. Well.
0: It gets worse, Regis. <laughs> There's, uh, there are worse things. They can even go further than that. Uh, in his uh, speech at the U.N., President Biden said, quote, Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter, no more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. This, as the United States illegally occupies one third of Syria, as the Iraqi government voted unanimously for the United States to leave Iraq and the U.S. said, well, you know, we look forward to being here for a long time. The hypocrisy is um, unmatched. Your Your thoughts on that, Regis?
1: Well, I agree with you uh, completely, and I, I felt that way for a very long time. The hypocrisy of the presidents of the United States, the secretaries of state, the Defense Department, the United States ambassadors, uh, it's been uh, the the hypocrisy and the straight-faced, bald-faced lies is beyond belief. And I have to tell you, you know, uh, the United States and NATO represent... Uh, a very small, maybe a little more than a billion people in the world. There are seven billion people in these other countries that support Russia and, by the way, China. They have left the American hegemon in the dust. Russia made that clear. Putin made that clear. Lavrov made that clear. We are now leaving you behind and going our own way, and the rest of the world is following.
2: Joe Biden says in that speech, if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for. Everything. But I thought the United States overthrew the democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014, which was really one of the key elements that started this whole mess.
1: Well, uh, you're exactly right. But for the United States to say that it has not invaded other countries, you know, there are some 80 documented instances from the beginning of the United States in the 1780s that the United States has invaded, intervened, committed uh, ex-judicial assassinations, coups, and the st- the stealing of land and resources from 80 countries around the world there's hardly a country that has not been affected by this so i mean it it just defies uh it, I, I don't know it defies belief it defies uh common sense and you know the only thing i can say as i'm going back to it is the rest of the world sitting there at the united nations looking at joe biden saying these things can you imagine what they must be saying to themselves?
0: It's the perfect example of the Emperor has no clothes. You know, he's sitting there saying that, thinking that he's he looking like the quote, leader of the free world, and all the people around him are sitting there shaking their heads, like, "I know you didn't just make that claim
2: with your record, buddy. All right, hey, well we've been hey, hey Garland, yeah. where are the weapons of mass destruction that were supposed to be in Iraq, and what happened to the yellow cake uranium from Niger? Good question. We'll have to check with the oh. New York Times. I'm sure they've oh, okay. got an answer. Okay. Right. They have Thanks. to
0: get it from the from the CIA first. They got to check with oh, Langley and get okay. their answer, and then they can print it. Thank you. We've been talking with Regis Trimble. He's an American citizen living in a Crimea. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon, with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Biden administration is pushing a simultaneous escalation of force against two nuclear powers. Also, we discussed the CIA's long clandestine war against Russia in Ukraine and Chinese President Xi Jinping orders his military to prepare for war. Joining us now to discuss these important matters, Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and an author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
3: Glad to be here.
0: You know, uh, David Stockman has an antiwar.com article, which sounds like something that I would have uh, named. And the uh, the article is called, What in the Hell Was Washington Thinking? In which he says, what in the hell were those bloody-minded Washington-NATO neocons thinking? At any time in the last nine months, they could have had a diplomatic settlement with Russia. What in the heck were they thinking, Dan Lazar? Well, I think
3: the important thing to bear in mind is that this was, this was across the board. I mean, everybody in Washington, I mean, every elected official and every think tank, you know, scholar, quote unquote, and every, every pundit, every editorial writer, every prominent journalist, et cetera, was marching in lockstep behind this confrontational policy with Russia over the Ukraine. And now we have, you know, a thinly veiled nuclear threats. Flying back and forth, um, it's a very dangerous situation, and 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 to to blame it all on Vladimir Putin, I mean, is to compound the problem. So things are really reaching a dangerous impasse.
2: So Stockman says the fact is, after Putin's speech of yesterday, the phrase "disastrous endgame" is barely adequate to describe the scenario ahead. I think that's incredibly accurate because with President Putin laying out what he's laying out and letting the world know he's not backing down, what then is the US slash NATO to do next? America seems
3: to seems to only know. It seems to only know one thing, and that is escalation. I mean, I I mean I mean, Joe Biden at the U.N. yesterday, and this is what he said, because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this institution stands for. Now, was, was Biden making a joke? I mean, America is a country that pursues its imperial ambitions to the to the hilt. I mean, the the, the westward, the eastward push of, of the of uh, of nato is what precipitated this crisis uh, and now we're facing the consequences uh, that the war is clearly going to escalate and it'll probably spread as well and of course if nukes get involved well that's just too that's
0: just beyond imagination you know, Dan, what's interesting about the article by St- David Stockton is he goes over the different issues, you know, um, that uh, there he talks about the NATO missiles in in, in Ukraine and, and, and on Russia's doorstep. He talks about the expansion of um, Crimea. And when you start looking at the list of things that he says – It's pretty clear here that the guy has a has a pretty grip of what's going on and that it was easily possible to avoid this through diplomatic means. But that clearly the neocons wanted the opposite. They wanted this war. They wanted to draw Russia into this dangerous situation on Russia's um, border. And now it it appears to me they really don't know what to do. I mean, Europe is falling apart. Europe, the people in Europe are going to go crazy and tear that place to shreds. And they've created a disaster that they have no idea how to manage dan
3: well i I, I agree totally. i mean it's a it's an amazingly reckless policy. It's an amazingly self-destructive policy. Uh, but um but, but you know, Joe Biden, look Joe Biden came into office with a vow. To restore American hegemony, Donald Trump had, in many ways, you know, had retreated from this, you know, this extreme imperialist stance. And I'm not defending Trump because he did a, a lot of bad things. In fact, if anything, he ratcheted up ten, uh, um, tensions with China. But in certain ways, he tried to pull back, and that just excited the the extreme animosity of the foreign policy establishment. They did everything in their power to drive Trump out of office through the phony Russiagate uh, scandal. And then once Biden came in, he came in with one purpose, and that was to restore American hegemony in full. And the U.S. pursued a very aggressive anti-Russian policy from the start, if you you may recall, I mean, Biden was only in office for a few weeks when he when he went out of his way to call Putin a killer. You know, he insulted him. Uh, he you know he behaved in the most provocative manner possible, um, and and he he refused to to reconsider uh, NATO policy. He refused to even even entertain any questions whatsoever. About Russian security uh, concerns, and in fact, in, in November 2021, last November, the U.S. and Ukraine uh, 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 signed a joint strategy paper, whose express purpose was to take back the Crimea. You know, I mean, I've always, I've always said, can you imagine if Russia and Syria signed a joint strategy uh, paper? Uh, to aim at taking back the Golan Heights from Israel? I mean, the the jets would be be scrambling within minutes. But the U.S. thought nothing of of pushing this hyper-aggressive policy. And the result the following February was the Russian invasion. And and, and now it's escalating further, all too predictably. Look at it. Wars are very easy to start and very difficult to end. And wars have a built-in tendency towards escalation, so that's what we're seeing uh, seeing now. I mean, we're actually seeing seeing uh, the nuclear threats being bandied about, and Russia is mobilizing 300,000 more troops in order to you know to to turn this thing around.
2: Candidate Joe Biden told us that he was going to lead with diplomacy. Unfortunately, I don't think he knows any diplomats because Tony Blinken is not a diplomat and the state department is supposed to be the diplomatic arm of the American government. And the guy that's leading it is not a diplomat. Um, Liz Truss, I know she's not on the American side. She's a British now prime minister, not a diplomat. When they when they stand there with Sergei Lavrov, they're they're single A ball trying to hit major league hitting, and I'm trying to hit major league pitching, and they can't do it. Now, with that said, you said the war will spread. Spread to where? Because if you add the winter coming, and the gas problem with Western European countries not having access to natural gas, therefore being cold and hungry, if you add a war to, to, that, to that situation, that's the end of Europe.
3: Well, well first of all, the, um, the, uh, the Ukrainians are pushing the US for longer range missiles. Missiles with ranges of two to 300 miles that will allow the Ukraine to strike deep within Russia. For the moment, Uh, The Biden administration is saying no, but I don't think that it'll stay no forever. And certainly if Russia escalates things, as it almost certainly will, I think the temptation for Biden will be to say yes. So the war will therefore spread to Russia itself. If the war spreads to Russia itself, Russia will have a a powerful incentive to strike at logistics centers in countries like uh, Romania- or Poland; these are the areas where the where the materiel, the NATO materiel for the the uh, Ukrainian forces, is assembled before being distributed. So Russia will have a a, a powerful incentive to strike at those. So I mean, all, and, and I agree. If you add to that the the deep economic distress which is taking hold in Europe and an increasingly unstable political situation. I um, as we've seen in Sweden, and we'll likely to see likely we see next weekend in, in Italy, uh, when far rightists uh, take power. I mean, the situation is explosive. But it it's predictably explosive. It's all too predictable. I mean, they should have known where this would lead, but they didn't pay attention.
2: Hey, Garland. This all this conversation reminds me. Of, I, I don't know how many months ago it was, you and I were talking about the meeting, the first meeting between uh, Macron and Putin when they were sitting at that very long table. And, and Putin told Macron, if you back this NATO move, I'm sending a missile into Paris. And th- this whole conversation just just reminds me of that of that conversation. Well, let's things. Things are, you know, things are bad enough.
0: Uh, uh, Dan, let's make them worse. TASS reports that Xi Jinping <laughs> urges China's armed forces to focus on prepping for wars. China. I mean, these insane people that are running this country are literally uh, uh, provoking war with the two most powerful nuclear weapons, uh, uh nations. In the world, you know, I mean, notwithstanding the U.S., of course, but uh, nuclear adversaries, whatever you want to call them, in the world, simultaneously, it is with I, I'm speechless when I think about what the Biden administration is doing right now with Russia and China. Dan Lazar,
3: well, yes, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, Biden's speech at the UN yesterday couldn't have been more bellicose, and and and, and he, it's it's amazing he 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 wraps his his bellicosity. In this kind of peace loving rhetoric, but it's completely unpersuasive. In fact, if anything, it comes out seeming, you know, sounding even scarier. Uh, but but the but the Biden has no he has no intention of of backing down. I mean, I, th- I think I think the guy is you know is senile and incompetent in my personal, you know, point of view. But nonetheless, he has no intention of 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 reconsidering. Of, uh, of, of stopping and saying, uh, where is this going? What are we doing? He seems to be only capable of moving in one direction and that is towards escalation. So we're seeing the results in the Ukraine and we will soon see the results in the, uh, in the Western Pacific.
2: And Dan, when you talk about the Western Pacific, and we talk about the United States as a nuclear power, and we talk about Russia as a nuclear power, and we talk about China as a nuclear power. I think you got to add North Korea into the conversation because the relationships between China and Russia and North Korea are only strengthening.
3: Yes, that's, that's yet another, that's yet another, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, time bomb, ticking time bomb. Uh, yes, they, they just can't keep pushing this. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and it provides, I mean, North Korea has every incentive to arm itself, prepare for the worst, uh, and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and remind the world at every opportunity of its nuclear capability, uh, you know, it's just a, I I mean, and the, the U S policy is, is deliberately, uh, designed to, uh, to, to ratchet up tensions, to ratchet up the, the, uh, the, the threat of war. Uh, and when you ratchet up the threat of the war, threat of war, what you end up with is
0: war. It seems to me that the U.S. leadership has gotten into this uncontrollable spiral down into, I mean, Iran On and on and on, they've gotten into this out of control spiral where they're just throwing out in all directions. You, we're going to get you and you over there, Iran, and you over there. You know, they're just pointing in all directions, screaming like uh, like mad people. Um, 30 seconds, Dan.
3: Well, I just I just think that the 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 Biden uh, MO modus operandi is that is never to back down. I mean, always to uh, to escalate always to up the rhetoric, always to turn on the aggression, always to make military threats.
4: Uh,
3: And even when they result in horrendous situations, uh, like in the Ukraine, Biden only knows, you know, only one, you know, one thing to do, and that is to uh, to turn the aggression up even higher.
0: We've been talking with Dan Lazar, investigative journalist and author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon here with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. South Korea's new president was caught on a hot mic criticizing the... Biden administration with expletives. Also, the U.S. military uses Chinese hardware for many components of its high-tech weapons, and pushing China away could cost them dearly. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have K.J. No, a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J., KJ welcome back to The Critical Hour.
5: Thank you. Pleasure to be
0: with you. Well, I guess I don't know if this goes under the comedy section of Radio Sputnik or what, but I find it interesting and I want to get your take. South Korea's Yoon Suk-yeol's foul-mouthed criticism of U.S. caught on hot mic goes viral. The leader made crude comment referring to Joe Biden's drive to increase funding to the global fund, which would require congressional approval. Your thoughts, K.J. No. Well, you
5: know, the president of South Korea is actually a walking hot mic. And it's only the ruling class here that is surprised by that. But essentially what happened was that he was expecting a large summit, a major summit with uh, Joe Biden uh, on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. And this is because the UN administration is really, really concerned about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, legislation, what this does is it eliminates the $7,500 tax credit for electrical vehicles made outside of North America. And this will essentially uh, seriously damage South Korea's EV market, which is EVs exported from South Korea into the United States. So South Korea is really, really unhappy about this. They see this as a betrayal by the United States because they're bending over backwards to support U.S. policy against their own interests. And now that they're seeing that the U.S. is, uh, you know, uh, stabbing them in the back anyway. And so he wanted a full summit with Joe Biden. But instead of getting a full summit, he was given a, a glad-handing drive, drive-by summit uh, with, uh, with Biden, which lasted all of 48 seconds. 48 seconds. And when that happened, he got nothing for it. You know, he had to come up to the drive-up window of the White House, and then they gave him a big, fat, juicy, nothing burger. So he was really, really pissed off. So as he was walking away, he said, if those F-U-C-K-E-Rs in the U.S. Congress don't pass the Global Fund Bill, how will Biden live down this S-H-I-T-face Embarrassment. So he was really, really pissed off. And he really, you know, seriously, uh, you know, uh, trash talked uh, the U.S. Congress as well as Joe Biden. Now, why did he do this? Probably because he's still pissed off at Joe Biden's you don't even exist handshake at the NATO summit. Uh, you know, he did a tit for tat by trying to ice out Nancy Pelosi when she came over to South Korea and uh, you know, I think that uh, he is feeling the disrespect and reacting. And as soon as he feels disrespected, I think that he will run closer and closer to China, which is undermining U.S. Uh, geopolitical strategy. It's working against their own interests because they were actually elated when Yun was first elected because he had promised in a foreign uh, affairs article to hand U.S. foreign policy to them on a silver platter.
2: This seems to be what I'd call a Groucho Marx diplomacy. I, I came to say I must be going. In terms of his uh, drive-by handshake with uh, with Yun, and I was going to ask you if this was really in retaliation for Yun's not uh, meeting Nancy Pelosi at the airport and basically. Uh, snubbing her while she was in South Korea, but to the bigger point, it seems to me that the Biden administration is is focusing its attention in the wrong areas. This whole thing with Yoon at the UN to me is really a waste of time when he should be focused on President Xi and President Putin and trying to stop World War Three. Uh, he seems to be getting distracted. By silly things and not focusing on the big things. Yes, you're absolutely
5: correct. I mean, if, you know, this is a real opportunity for she and Biden to meet and have a real sit down discussion. Instead, he's distracting and trying to work with his, you know, minor partners, Quisling subordinates. And this is what the Biden administration has spoken of when they talk about these kind of minilateral bespoke alliances that they are going to use to combat and tie down and bandwagon against China. It's not working that well. I mean, certainly, as you point out, uh, Yun Seok-yeol was extraordinarily disrespectful, uh, perhaps justifiably so, to Nancy Pelosi. If you recall, Pelosi did this uh, you know, she practically triggered, almost triggered a war with China over Taiwan. And then she landed in South Korea right afterwards. And I'm sure that she expected some kind of rousing hero's welcome, you know, with a parade, etc. But she was greeted with nothing, not even a meeting with top staff. And President Yoon So-Gil refused to meet with her in person. He was 15 minutes away. He refused to meet with her, say, was on vacation, which is absurd because in South Korea, political affairs never go on vacation. And then to rub in the insult, he went to a theater performance and he treated the performers to a lavish banquet that lasted late into the night, which Nancy Pelosi was not invited to, not even for dessert, where it's reputed that they serve gourmet chocolate ice cream, which Nancy Pelosi loves.
0: No, but did it come from a twelve thousand dollar refrigerator? I think it just doesn't have the same taste for her unless it comes out of a twelve thousand dollar refrigerator, such as her own at home. Escaping the security dilemma on the Korean Peninsula, responsible statecraft, Kim Jong Un again threatens to go to to go nuclear. Maybe this time, Washington and Seoul will react the right way. You know, there's a lot of foolishness to this, uh, to this article, but when you get to the bottom it of the article, it does speak of the responsibility of Seoul and Washington for whatever this is, this crisis or whatever. And it does recommend that they turn the volume down here. Um, And whenever I hear people say that North Korea is paranoid, I think of the old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. For God's sake, if they, if people are trying to literally on your border doing practicing decapitation strikes, I can imagine that would make somebody a little antsy. Your thoughts, KJ?
5: You're absolutely correct. You know, the first thing I would say is that uh, regarding North Korea, I think it's more accurate to say um, no matter how paranoid they get, it's never enough. <laughs> because... The U.S. is constantly scheming to uh, overthrow, dismember, and has specific plans to decapitate the North Korean leadership, which they rehearse once or twice every year uh, with massive military uh, exercises. But uh, North Korea has always sued for peace. Uh, You know, a peace treaty was signed in 1953 or armistice, which was supposed to be followed up by a peace treaty uh, actual negotiations for a peace treaty. And within 24 hours of signing the armistice, the U.S. essentially declared, you know, the efforts for peace null and void. And it's militarized the peninsula ever since. The armistice required the removal of all foreign troops, all Chinese troops left. U.S. troops still are there in the tens of thousands. And you're absolutely uh, correct. This creates an unbearable Security dilemma where North Korea has to constantly escalate. Uh, Otherwise, it will face existential destruction, which it has been threatened with on many occasions, including nuclear war. I mean, Colin Powell said that he would turn North Korea into a charcoal briquette, which is unthinkable for a country which had, what, 50,000 gallons of napalm doused on it uh, for three years. So I think that uh, the North Korean policy is one of nuclear deterrence. That nuclear deterrence is a complex game of signaling because sometimes that deterrence is signaled through ambiguity and indeterminacy. And then in some situations, removing all ambiguity strengthens your position. North Korea's deterrence is a very, very weak one. It's actually a suicidal one. Tim Beale, a scholar of North Korea, calls it the Samson option. The only way they can use it is uh, as an act of suicide. And so the clearer that North Koreans signal its determination for deterrence ahead of time, the better it is. And that's why it has passed legislation uh, saying that it will respond with nuclear weapons if it is
2: attacked strategically. And to that point, as the United States looks at its deteriorating relationship with China, As the United States looks at its ongoing provocation with Russia and President Putin's uh, response yesterday, does the United States with that have to factor North Korea into that dynamic as well?
5: I think you should always factor North Korea into that dynamic. North Korea is nothing to be trifled with, and as I pointed out, in the early moments of the Cold War, when the contestation between the U.S. and China escalated, North Korea was the first point of engagement, the first conflict. And when they fought, they fought the U.S. to a standstill with the help of the Chinese. But even more important, the North Koreans actually helped the Chinese establish the PRC by defeating the Japanese in, uh, in Manchuria and northern China.
0: China decoupling could shoot Pentagon in the foot. Made in China, pump fe- magnets found in F-35 fighter jets underscore deeper U.S. supply chain issues in rare earth metals and chips. The bottom line is this. This is an article from Asia Times, and that is we all need to kind of make it together. And the U.S. is pushing this false narrative that somehow the U.S. can push away the commodities king in Russia and the industrial king in China and still make it. And this is... Just an example that will go all through our society, the things that we would need if we were to decouple from China. Your thoughts, KJ?
5: You're absolutely correct. Decoupling is not possible. At least decoupling within a modern industrial state as it stands is not not possible. You are not going to be able to enclose uh, and uh, separate U.S. uh, manufacturing and U.S. uh, consumer economy or military economy from anything China makes. I've said this before. Donald Trump wanted to pursue decoupling, and he did that because he was a neo-mercantilist who doesn't understand economics and because he's a real estate baron. And in real estate, there is no such thing as a significant supply chain. Land has no supply chain, and a building has a few hundred components. But your average car has 30,000 components, and a jet fighter has 350,000 components. Take a guess. How many of those components are made in China? And you'll have a sense of how difficult it is to exclude China from uh, a manufacturing process. The thing is that what's absurd here is that the fear was that China would weaponize its monopoly on rare earth metals by, uh, you know, creating uh, a blockade of them against the United States. But this is actually worse than that, because the U.S. has essentially blockaded itself from Chinese products, a little bit like the way that U.S., uh, the EU sanctions on Russia have, you know, created an energy catastrophe for itself. So the U.S. is continuing to do this, and it just simply doesn't understand the foolish and the self-defeating nature of this uh, Rare earth magnets do not have any capacity to send back transmission or listen in on U.S., uh, you know, uh, U.S. electronic uh, signals. But the fact that the U.S. wants to create this, uh, you know, lily-white, uh, virgin, you know, uh, industrial supply chain is simply—it's an ideological fantasy that has no grounding. In
0: the real world. KJ No is a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Ray McGovern argues that the U.S. public is being brainwashed into accepting an extinction-level war against Russia. Also, we discuss how Russia's partial mobilization will change the dynamics of the Ukraine military crisis. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity— Ray McGovern, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Ray starts off, and you'll find his article, Brainwashed for War with Russia, September 22nd on Antiwar.com. Ray writes, thanks to establishment media, the sorcerer-apprentices of f- advising President Joe Biden. I refer to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and China Specialist Kurt Campbell will have no trouble rallying Americans for the widest war in 77 years, starting in Ukraine and maybe spreading to China. And shockingly, under false pretenses, Ray McGovern.
6: Well, thanks for letting me comment on this. Uh, As I read that sentence again or hear it read to me, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I hope that it's not going to be so easy this time to deceive Americans into entering into a much more risky, and much more fateful war. Um, there are some polls recently that Americans don't want to get into another war. I mean, hello. Does that sounds reasonable. Uh, actually, they're pretty good polls. And um, the question is whether they can be, whether they will be able to see through the media this time, as they were unable to do before the war in Iraq whether they can see the truth. And that's, of course, why I decided I would write this article and adduce some truths that they will not have seen in the major media that are concrete evidence and that lead to an, to an explanation as to what we're faced with today. I guess the final thought on that is that's your job and that's my job. You know, to the degree we can have some success and also the listeners and readers of of your of your station. If we if we have put our backs to it. Right. And and if we really uh, let it all out and try to educate our friends and neighbors and everybody else, maybe we can overcome. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't like to be pessimistic, but it didn't work last time. You know, I want to leave open the possibility that it won't be so easy this time, especially given the stakes
1: involved.
2: Well, Ray McGovern, you are a man of faith, and it seems as though you are leaning on your faith to, <laughs> with, to, to generate your optimism. Because the thing I wonder, as you talk about the polls and you talk about Americans not wanting to go to war, my question is does that opinion matter now because it really seems to be that the elected representatives aren't listening to their constituents and they're particularly the democrats are ignoring their base and they're siding with the military industrial complex and that makes me think about the uh, uh, i think his name is his last name is calhoun he's the, the ceo of uh of Boeing, and he was asked in 2020, who did, did it matter to him who won the election between Biden and Trump? And he said, no, it doesn't matter because we're going to get paid anyway. So your thoughts, the, A, don't confuse the Americans with the facts. Please don't do that. And again, the opinions seem to matter less now than they did before. Well, Wilmer,
6: I suspect you're right. And that's why I, that's why I wrote this thing as I did. <laughs> uh, since then, I have learned of these polls, and uh, you know, hope springs eternal. Uh, I sort of resist the appellation of optimistic. I'm not, I'm not optimistic. <laughs> it can be, you know, with these idiots running our policy. It's not the Russians. It's it's the reckless, feckless Biden and Sullivan and that crew. So yeah, I'm equally pessimistic. All I'm all I'm trying to do is hold out some hope. That if you and and Garland and I and, and all your listeners do their job, well, we can, you know, there's still six, seven weeks before the midterm. We can float our representatives and say, look, you don't know about this because it's not in the mainstream media. But, hey, this McGovern, look, he's got three little things that show <laughs> that it's like Cuba. Like, you know, I mean, hello. Uh, l- let me I was watching the U.N. Security Council debate just an hour ago, okay? And uh, this thing leapt out at me. Joseph Borrell, you know, the uh, foreign policy guru of the European Union, okay? What does he say? He says, we do not believe in spheres of influence. We believe in the free choice of smaller countries. Well... Uh, He's taking his cue from Blinken, who said, I reject the concept of spheres of influence. Okay, All right. okay. So on on those grounds, John Kennedy was dead wrong in illegally putting a quarantine around Cuba, threatening to invade it and saying, no, no, you're not going to do this. I mean, this is threatening the use of force. He 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 saw an existential threat to our country. I didn't know of anybody, and I was around. I was in the Army then. I don't remember anybody that gave a second thought to what Kennedy did, okay? It was an existential threat. These missiles, we didn't know at the time that they were armed with nuclear weapons, but they were, okay? These missiles were an existential threat to us. Now, can't people sort of, aren't people bright enough to to kind of realize that, you know, In those days, there'd still be 20, 30 minutes before those missiles uh, could reach the U.S. from Cuba. Now, missiles shot from Romania, where there are emplacements for them already in place, constructed in Poland, where they're almost finished. They can reach, by Putin's own warning, they can reach Moscow in 7 to 10 minutes. That's for cruise Mm -hmm. missiles, which are rather slow. A hypersonic missiles, five to seven minutes. Give me a break. Can't we understand? Can't we understand that when the Russians said, "Look, this is an existential threat to us," stop it? And then when Biden unexpectedly said, "Okay," and he did this on December thirtieth, he he told Putin, "Okay, we have no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine." Big concession. 30 December last year what happens 2 weeks later at their next summit on the telephone all of a sudden Biden forgot about that promise and the russians were just they were up in arms and what happened to the promise we, you know NATO is one thing but these missiles these missiles are things on the ground that threaten us existential threat how come you went back on your promise Now, those things are things that Americans just don't know. What they know is that Putin is evil, that all Russians are evil, that they're genetically evil, for God's sake. And, you know, I finished with this little quote. I wish it were funny. Uh, It's, uh, you know, Will Rogers, the humorist from a century ago. He says, look, the problem, and this is, please pay attention. (laughs) here. Will Rogers, okay, quote, The problem ain't what people know. It's what people know that ain't so. That's the problem, end quote. And that's the problem we face now. And if we go with Joseph Burrell and his benighted view that a small country like Ukraine can allow medium range ballistic missiles to be in place pointed toward Russia, well, he just don't know much about the real world, and again, the analogy with Cuba is precisely correct. Existential threats to major nations call forth call forth very strong measures. Kennedy got, it out of, get, got us out of that without a war. Uh, I was in the infantry, Army, intelligence, not Army, Infantry School at the time. There were no weapons in Fort Benning. They were all down in Florida, ready to go into Cuba. That's how close we were. So can't we understand, or maybe we just don't want to, that by putting those missiles right up on the on the Russian border, that was an existential, existential threat? And I think we have to give Putin the benefit of that. I think he really and truly does think that his primary duty is to defend his country. And I give him credit for that. And if I were in his, his shoes, uh, you know, I don't like to be hypocritical. I, I don't like to, you know, say, you know, he's done a terrible thing. I don't know what I would do were I faced with this kind of existential threat. I know what my idol did. His name was John Kennedy. He was the guy that got me down to Washington in the first place. I applauded him for doing that. What Putin did, well, uh, just understand why he did it, please, and not to jump to uh, the fact that all Russians are genetically evil.
0: you know, I do want to ask you this because you to me, you can't have this con uh, this conversation without bringing China into it. Xi Jinping President Xi Jinping recently it's been reported, said to his military, you know, and his people, you know, prepare for real war. um that being said, after the Pelosi trip, I kind of thought to myself, China's not going to be baited. They know that the neocons are trying to the same game. They want to bait them into attacking Taiwan. And then they can say, all right, everybody, it's time for all of the, uh, uh, you know, the um, self-defeating sanctions, blah, blah, blah. And I just think they're smarter than that. Um, but at any rate, your thoughts on you got to, to me when you talk about these existential threats and what the U.S. is doing on the border of other world powers. You have to bring in China, Ray. Your thoughts?
6: I agree. Uh, China is incredibly important. I've been singing that tune for two years now, and having trouble getting people to listen. Um, China is in uh, all in with Putin on these things, and they've made it clear that this is a departure in their policy of resisting each and every infringement on the sovereignty of another country, they've given what I've called, they've given Putin a waiver on Westphalia. okay? So, they they now say, uh, we judge each action of that kind, quote, on its own merits, end quote. Now, I was trying to make sure how I could make it easier for people, some in your audience, to understand. Maybe I put it this way, okay? I grew up in the Bronx, there was a, we had, we didn't have guns in those days, we had uh, switchblades and so forth, knives. I wasn't part of this, but there were the Fordham Baldies in my neighborhood, okay? Nothing to do with the university, the Fordham Baldies, okay? There was another group of equal strength, the Tremont, whatever they were. And over there, another two miles away, uh, was the, uh, the Jerome Avenue guys, okay? now. We, we all know, they all know about equal strength. They had an equal number of knives. They had an equal number of people, okay? Now, the Ford and Baldies would never even think of taking on both of the, the Jerome Avenue and the Tremont Avenue guys at the same time. They would curry favor with one of them, so that if they wanted to take over. But well, all I'm trying to say is that it makes exactly no sense. I think maybe the best way I can conclude this is to say the Ford Baldies, didn't think they were exceptional. They didn't think they were indispensable. They knew that if they went into somebody else's sphere of influence, they would get creamed. And the the others knew that too. So there was a modus vivendi here. Joseph Burrell of the European Union doesn't understand that. He probably went to the finest schools. But gang warfare is an, in my view, <laughs> an apt analogy
0: in this case. We've been talking with Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You can find him all over YouTube with interviews, and go to raymcgovern.com so you can keep up with everything he's doing. He even puts up, he might even put up some of these uh, particular interviews on raymcgovern.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden is taking heat for his protestations against taking territory by force as the U.S. illegally occupies the oil fields of Syria. Also, a new probe finds that the Israelis deliberately assassinated Shireen Abu Akhla. Joining us to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. According to um, Joe Biden, Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. This is a big one. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. You know, Laith... I guess it's only your neighbor you can't take by force. I guess Libya or you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, Serbia and and uh, God forbid uh, Syria. Uh, all of those you can take by force, but 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 your neighbor is that's apparently the only one you can't take by force, according to Joe Biden. Your thoughts, your thoughts on this madness,
4: Leith Marouf Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, of course, there's Cuba that was a neighbor of the United States that the United States attempted to invade. Uh, Palestine. About Palestine, Palestine, Iraq. Of course, right now we're uh, you know reaching almost twenty years since the invasion of Iraq and the death of a million and a half people because of that war, uh, that illegal invasion, uh, an invasion of a country that is uh, not threatening uh, your territory, that is not authorized by the United Nations Security Council, is the highest uh, form of war crime. And crime against against humanity, and the the United States and NATO have been doing this since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we can actually, you know, because a lot of uh, talk out there right now is about World War III. If you want to be truthful about it, World War III already started mm-hmm. uh, with the invasions of uh, Iraq, Somalia, Yugoslavia. Uh, in the 90s and uh, and what followed after uh, the expansion of the American-based empire, the minute the Soviet Union collapsed, this is really the beginning of World War III. Right now, the United States is, uh, as an empire, is at an impasse. It cannot expand more uh, because without confronting uh, medium-sized and, and, and top-sized, uh, top-tiered countries. Uh, like uh, China, Russia, and Iran, and any of those uh, confrontations and excursions into Asia, the new rising Asia that is capable of uh, sustaining itself, will uh, lead us to a nuclear war. The threat is already obvious in, in Ukraine and Taiwan, um, maybe now even in uh, Western Asia with a possible war with between Israel, uh, the Zionist colony, and uh, the axis of resistance uh, looming in the uh, horizon.
2: I'm glad you mentioned World War Three because we've talked about on this program about the beginning of World War One, And a lot of people are taught in history that it was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Austria that started World War I, but what most people failed to understand was that there was a lot of unrest and tensions, for example, in the Balkans, that there were a number of tensions and a number of things going on at the time. And the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was really just the the spark that ignited that whole thing. And so to your point, there are a lot of things going on right now, many of which have were started at the behest of the United States, and something in Ukraine could just be that spark
4: Yes, yes, and of course uh, we you know listening to the speech of uh, President Putin yesterday to the nation is clear indication that uh, Russia will not allow. Uh, a loss for itself in in this battle in Ukraine, Uh, and it will be ready to use tactical nukes and other weapons to make sure that the United States doesn't encroach on its uh, safety zone to its capital, uh, Moscow. And so here we are at a situation where the United States has uh, completely lost control of the message the rest of the world by the way this is it's crazy i'm i'm currently in montreal in canada and i can tell you the uh, news bubble that uh, people live here the total blackout of uh, reality is uh, overwhelming i mean not only for instance you know the, the the you know looking at how the case of somebody trying to access information or Relate in in this sphere here in uh, the West is practically impossible, um, but also it's uh, it's becoming um, you know considered heresy to say the things that we are saying right now on air uh, to tell the truth that, that we are at a very dangerous moment, and it's all caused by the fact that the United States as an empire. Is not willing to uh, live amongst equals. Uh, It wants to maintain supremacy, and uh, with that, uh, bring humanity to the edge of uh, abyss.
0: Yeah, and and you know, uh, as far as the nuclear part, you know, as I see it, Russia said, "Look." If you try to take out our country, we will will utilize anything that any means that we have to defend ourselves. I don't think there's a country in the world that would do that, you know, that wouldn't do that. So while the mainstream media in the West says, oh, they threatened us with nukes. Well, wait a minute. If I say to you, I have a knife, I don't want any trouble. But if you try to beat me up, I will use it to defend
2: myself. And then you say, well, he threatened me with a knife. Actually, I didn't. Quickly to that point. If you go back to people need to go back to August, and I think it was Tony Blinken that mm-hmm. first broached the subject of nuclear weapons being used in the region, and said the United States uh, will um, b- the United States would do it if 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 it needed
0: to. Uh, in fact, what he said was the United States would use nuclear weapons to protect. Our interests. He didn't go. even say anything about the people or anything like, yeah, well, you know, if we and we don't even know what Tony Blinken's interests are. Apparently, they have nothing to do with you and I and average people in America, Wilmer. At any rate, Shireen uh, Abu Akla, a new probe, finds that Israeli forces deliberately killed the journalist. You know, um... Aleith, I don't think—I mean, it's great we need those probes, but I don't think we needed a probe. I think we already knew that, but apparently there are actually forensic investigations now that are showing that, and there are people saying we need an international criminal court probe, but I do think— that one of the things that this is going to demonstrate is that so many of these international entities like the international criminal court are captured by the US empire and they aren't really worth the you know the 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 time it would take you to ask for an investigation laith marouf
4: oh yeah i mean look this story of uh, the journalist Srina Bakli, which was one of the most famous journalists working from palestine for the last uh, 3 decades in the Arabic world, she had a huge status, and she was, uh, you know, assassinated live on television. Um, you know, it's funny, one of the things that the Zionists attacked me on here in Canada and claimed made me anti-Semitic was a um, presentation at the beginning of uh, one of our events that we were holding for, um, uh, uh, you know, mapping out a anti-racism strategy. For the broadcasting sectors here in Canada, uh, it ha- you know w- the event happened just a few days after the assassination of Shirin Abakli, and we had a statement in the beginning condemning uh, the Zionist calling for assassinating her, and they claimed that basically me um, reading that speech uh, condemning the assassination of this uh, journalist uh, is is evidence to my hate to Jewish people. Um, So here we have, of course, uh, finally, uh, a report that proves exactly what Palestinians have been saying since she was assassinated, that this was a deliberate assassination. It's a show of force uh, to threaten any Palestinian that is trying to tell the story of uh, the resistance and the violence being uh, meted on on our people for the last hundred years. Similarly, when when we use the word Jewish supremacy or Jewish white supremacy to describe Zionism, um, and this is what Palestinians have been saying for the last hundred years. Again, now we have the Beit Salam, the largest Israeli human rights organization, uh, you know, stating clearly that uh, Israel is built on Jewish supremacy and maintained through it uh, as a colony, and, and now it's a full apartheid. Um, the, this assassination is a sad story. Um, it also shows how irrelevant media production is in the West, because the journalists in the West, all of them, uh, have refused to basically uh, stand up for Shirin Abu Akleh and Palestinian journalists that are being killed on a daily basis and and thrown in jails for uh, their work on the front lines of uh, human liberation. Uh,
2: Two things. One, the report also found, the forensic report that was done, also found that not only did the Israeli sniper assassinate her, but the military then prevented civilians from coming to her aid. And the second point is, that this report was presented in the hague the seat of the international criminal court so and so her family has asked the icc to open a new investigation now i know that the united states is not a is not a member of the icc or i don't believe that it is so what's your what's your feeling on where this goes from here
4: look uh, all these bodies as you said Um, in this introduction uh, are captured by the imperial order, you know, Washington DC being the the capital of that imperial order. Um, But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take these cases to these venues. It's similar for the work that I do and that I'm trying to do right now battling in the uh, broadcast commissions uh, for the rights of uh, indigenous and racialized peoples and or battling right now for freedom of speech and uh, against Twitter and so forth. These are venues that are colonial um, but the the least of it, the the worst outcome that could ha- happen from challenging the ICC to take on this case of Shireen Avakle is that the ICC shows itself to be a captured, uh, useless venue that cannot bring justice uh, by uh, either refusing to do the work and or uh, you know, going on the side of the Zionists. And the best outcome would be that this ICC takes on the work and finds uh, the Zionists to be guilty of uh, assassinating a journalist on purpose. Now you see what I mean. So the battle is to take it, take on our enemy in every venue, every field. Not make, uh, not allow our uh, enemy to have uh, any rest anywhere, whether we're on air, writing in academia, in in labor unions, in uh, in the venues of of, of supposed. Uh, Law and justice, and on the battlefield on the ground, this has to be a complete uh, you know strategy. This is how liberation works. And yes, I have no trust in the ICC, but I definitely uh, wish uh, that the family of Shireen Abu Akleh continues on their push uh, to uh, you know show the whole world how the whole justice structure is created by the imperial order are nothing uh, but a facade for colonialism and injustice.
0: Latham Roof is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side, stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. As the U.S. claims that Nicolas Maduro is a dictator, his PSUV party approval rating is triple that of all other parties combined. Joining us now to discuss this is Alex Juarez. He, he was a regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, and he's a co- co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela organization. Alex, welcome back to The Critical Hour. We're starting off with an OrinocoTribune.com article, The Latest Monitor Pious Poll, published this Wednesday, September 21, on a Twitter account by the polling firm Hinterlaces, shows that the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, PSUV, more than doubled the total, I said tripled, I meant doubled the total approval rating of all opposition parties combined. The PSUV, together with the Great Patriotic Pole Alliance, adding 1%, obtained 36%, making the combined approval rating of 14 percent for Democratic action, Justice First, A New Time, Unidad, Popular Will, Vinte Cope, and all others combined look pale in comparison. Doesn't sound to me like a mad dictator, Alex Juarez. Absolutely. I mean, there
7: are several um, small parties and, uh, you know, parties of the opposition um, and the United Socialist Party, uh, which started as a coalition um, in the late 90s. Uh, has definitely uh, garnered uh, the support of the majority of the population. You know, the, uh, me as a, an observer of the elections down there late last year, I saw for myself how the people were tying the consequences, the, the sanctions, and how the government's persevering with that. And uh, you know, saw how the, the the sanctions of the economic warfare imposed by the United States was caused by the United States and not by their own government, and the people came out in support in those regional elections, and the majority of those regions had went to the United Socialist Party. So this new reaffirmation of support for the party does not surprise me whatsoever.
1: They
2: asked the question, uh, who, would they, who would people choose if given a chance to be the next president? Maduro, uh, who's been on an upward trajectory, was clearly the first choice with 36 percent. What does that say to you, particularly in these very hard and tumultuous times in Venezuela, that Venezuelans are backing the authoritarian, the dictator, Nicolas Maduro?
7: Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, Maduro is a progressive populist, and the population is backing him. And to call his government uh, authoritarian or dictatorial is ridiculous. Um, if they were dictatorial, they would have immediately, as soon as Guaido started calling for a foreign invasion of the nation, I rounded him up and had him shot. And not only, not only has he not been shot, but Guaido hasn't even been arrested. He's walking the streets uh, uh, you know, safe in, in Venezuela, I mean a lot of people attack him when this see him because he's a traitor. But the government does not go after him, uh, even though he's a traitor, and he's clearly uh, called for sabotage and invasion of the nation. So n- nothing of that shows uh, that it's a dictatorship. And usually they say it's a dictatorship because there was a public referendum that said that Maduro could be elected in multiple times. But Angela Merkel was elected in multiple times and so was FDR. So just because they're using that type of system does not make does not mean it's a dictatorship.
0: Here's another interesting article. British authorities left Presidents Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua and Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela out of the guest list for Queen Elizabeth II's funeral next Monday. The, the U.K. does not recognize Nicolas Maduro's president and recognizes opposition leader Juan Guaido instead, which is preposterous, particularly in light of the fact that recently when the Biden administration needed to negotiate for oil with Venezuela, they didn't go to Juan Guaido they went to Nicolas Maduro. Everything they're doing now, they go to Nicolas Maduro. But for some reason, the um, uh, the people of the UK, I mean, excuse me, the, the leadership of the UK and the um, uh, leadership of the United States want to maintain this facade. Your thoughts, Alex Suarez?
7: Well, absolutely. The British uh, stole a billion in Venezuelan gold, and their courts decided not to give it to Guaido or Maduro, but take it on for themselves. So, How uh, convenient is that? Um, also, Bolsonaro is the only Leader of Latin America from from Brazil that is going to, well, that has attended the the Queen's funeral. Um, So even countries that were invited have refused to go. um, And this is all a defiance of British as well as American imperialism.
2: And part of the irony there is, as I understand it, it was reported either this past Monday or maybe it was last Thursday that Joe Biden now is thinking about or planning to recognize Maduro as the legitimate president of Venezuela. He's planning to do this after the midterms, and I think it's little Marco Rubio who is up in arms uh, saying that, you know, this is an atrocity. Right, and Marco
7: Rubio uh, wrote a book about his family escaping from Fidel Castro when they, in fact, escaped from Batista. Um, So this guy is a verifiable liar, liar from the beginning, Um, He's coming on ads here in Florida saying, you know, illegals, this illegals that. I mean, talking about his own people as illegals in a dehumanizing way. Uh, He's definitely self-loathing. He's a a liar. Um, Not somebody I respect at all.
0: We got some info. um, And this is from NBC News, a U.S. fugitive known as Fat Leonard. What kind of nickname is that? Um, Apprehended in Venezuela after weeks on the run. Uh, Leonard Glenn Francis, who pleaded guilty in 2015 to bribing Navy officials in a $35 million scandal, cut off his GPS monitor and fled weeks before he was to have been sentenced. Apparently, he's been found in Venezuela. You know, um, we were talking earlier and you said you thought there could be some uh, exchange of people going on. Your thoughts on on, uh, Fat Leonard? Yeah,
7: I think Fat Leonard, you know, believed the propaganda about Venezuela being a corrupt system and thought, well, I can go here and pay some bribes and then stay for a little little bit and go somewhere else. Well, he was wrong. (laughs) Venezuela captured him. He's a a wanted criminal. Um, And uh, I don't think they're going to give him over that easily to the United States. Uh, uh, Him and the other American criminals sold to Venezuela. There could be a prisoner exchange. If there's talk of a prisoner exchange with Russia, I don't know why there couldn't be with Venezuela.
2: I also find it interesting that they say Francis was captured by Venezuelan authorities who who had been made aware of this by Interpol. So that so instead of the United States making a direct plea for this guy, to me this shows the international involvement that Venezuela is not is not nearly as isolated as the United States is trying to make it out to be and that President Maduro is operating as a leader and is operating as a part of the world community, even though the United States keeps trying to put him in virtual exile.
7: Absolutely. And, you know, the, the illegal holding of Ambassador, the Venezuelan Ambassador Alex Saab by the United States, uh, you, know, th- you know, that's somebody that they could definitely look at uh, doing an exchange with. Um, and Interpol is basically an instrument of the U.S. empire. I mean, Interpol was used against Alex Saab originally when he was in a stopover on a diplomatic mission in Cape Verde. Um, so it's not that the Venezuelans aren't cooperating with Interpol, but I don't think they're going to be that willing to hand them over to the United States until a deal is reached.
0: Uh, you know, Wilmer. Ever since I saw this article, I had to—I just had a feeling I wanted to say, "Hey, hey, hey! It's Fad Leonard." <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, looking at this now, here's a question I have: For the last several years, the United States um, sanctioned. Uh, Venezuela's economy to the point where, at one point, they literally lost 99 percent of the gross domestic product for uh, for for Venezuela. And they and the U.S.'s response was, "Oh, look at Maduro. He's terrible at handling his money. You took all but one percent of it. How good can you be with handling one percent of what you made before?" But. In the last quarter, the first quarter of this year, Venezuela's economy was the fastest growing in Latin America. It grew 17 percent. But for some reason, I don't hear them now saying, well, that Nicolas Maduro sure is good with the economy. He's got the fastest growing economy in, uh, in Latin America. There seems to be radio silence on that, Alex. Well, yeah,
7: the press secretary said the same thing that the press secretary said under Trump that, uh, you know, that Venezuelan migrants are escaping communism. They say nothing about the economic warfare or the sanctions. You know, they're complaining about Venezuelan migrants that were sent uh, by DeSantis to Martha's Vineyard, and that is upsetting. What they're not talking about is these people were escaping the results of U.S. economic warfare that that affects everybody within the Venezuelan society, that has killed over 100,000 people, according to the U.N.
2: And that's a very, very important point, because just today on NPR, they were interviewing... Uh, Of Some of the Venezuelan migrants and the the impression that they were leaving you with was that these people were fleeing a dictator.
7: Absolutely. Some of the migrants themselves have been manipulated to believe that. I don't I I doubt that all of them think that way. Uh, But if you look at the reality, it's U.S. foreign policy in Central and South America. Uh, that is resulting in a lot of these people leaving. And you see a lot of people voting left, voting anti-imperialist governments in throughout Latin America now as a response uh, to the suffering from the, from the pandemic and the suffering from U.S. sanctions. The people want an alternative, and they're starting to believe in the left populist leaders like Maduro, Octavia, etc., uh, as an alternative to, for their society
0: and it looks to me like that the the expansion and the growth of left-leaning um, countries in uh, Latin America are going to be beneficial for all because Venezuela in the past when Hugo Chavez was there they helped the poorer countries they helped Cuba they helped the countries that are being oppressed by the US Empire and I would suspect as Venezuela's oil gets back on you know on the market as they start getting money again that you could probably expect that Venezuela will go back to helping the Hades and the um and the Cubas of the world.
7: Absolutely. I mean the reason given by Trump why the uh, sanctions against Cuba were increasing was their alliance with Venezuela. Um and they took advantage of the the lack of oil being given or sold to Cuba uh at favorable prices by Venezuela uh to try to drive a wedge between the two nations, but it did the opposite. Uh, Both nations are in solidarity with one another and with other progressive Latin American nations, and they're standing up to the U.S. empire, and the people are responding to that, by no longer voting in neoliberal or or right-wing leaders, but uh, opting for the left anti-imperialist governments in the majority of the region of Latin America. In October, uh, Bolsonaro could be voted out. Lula could be back in. He was an ally of Chavez. That could definitely help change in several Latin American countries of restored diplomatic relations uh, with Venezuela, uh, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, all very recent. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that
2: progresses. Do you see a shift in terms of support for Haiti as the countries that you mentioned get on their feet uh, with their left-leaning governments? Could Haiti become a, uh, a rallying cry where a number of these countries come and provide support to Haiti uh, uh, at the dismay of the United States?
7: Absolutely. The the sanctions don't just hurt the Venezuelan people. They hurt the people of Haiti. They hurt the people of Cuba who are unable to get access to the Venezuelan oil that they had before. And the people in Haiti know this. They're intelligent people. And when they go out and they protest, they have signs of Maduro and they want to reach out to their Venezuelan comrades. They don't have signs calling for um, a military invasion like sellouts from Guaido who only represent a small fraction of the, of the Venezuelan people. So the Haitians, the Cubans, they, they know what's going on. And they're all united against the economic warfare that's being imposed on them.
0: Alex Suarez. Hey, Alex, where can people go online to find you, follow you, stuff like that?
7: Yeah, I'm on Twitter under Al R Suarez. That's A-L-R without the middle initial, Suarez, S-U-A-R-E-Z. Like I talked about last time, I wrote a book recently called The Diplomat on the Alex Saab case. It's also available in Spanish, so I'm just trying to get the word out. Hopefully Alex Saab could be free, all the political prisoners can be free, and that these vicious sanctions end.
0: Alex Suarez is a regional election observer uh, last year for the Venezuelan elections and he's co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik I'm your host Garland Nixon with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon there's more on the other side, stay tuned We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Fed has raised interest rates again ostensibly to fight inflation, but most economists predict that it will drive the nation into a deep recession or worse. Also, thousands take to the street in Belgium against soaring energy prices. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Linwood Tahid. He's the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tahid, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Washington Post reports the Federal Reserve will not back down from its fight against inflation, even though aggressive moves to slow the economy will inevitably bring pain to households and businesses nationwide. The central bank's chief said Wednesday as the bank raised interest rates again. We have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. Well, Dr. Taheed, there is a painful way. And it doesn't appear like it's going to put inflation behind us anyway. Your thoughts?
8: Well, the the, the, the rhetoric of, the, uh, of uh, J- uh, Jerome Powell has certainly changed. And, uh, and recently, too, uh, too uh, from uh, we, we're going to get inflation down, but we're going to have a soft landing, to a uh, realization that there will be pain, that, that some, uh, we can talk about who that is, will have to suffer. Uh, until we can get inflation under control. Now, now inflation is running um, above 8%. It's down a bit from 9% at its peak, but the target for inflation for the Fed is 2%. And so we've got uh, quite a bit to go uh, to get to a 2%. And uh, this 0.75% increase in the interest rate is not unexpected. And I suspect that we can have more of those, uh, if not larger, going into the future. This is the fifth time this year that uh, the interest rates have been, have been raised, and it was projected from last year that would, there would be at least seven times. So this year, um, well, we've got, uh, what are we, uh, uh, three more months, so we'll probably get three
2: more months of increases this year. So one of the things that this seems to impact are uh, interest rates on mortgages. So mortgage rates are going up, housing sales, uh, uh, housing prices are coming down, but housing sales are slowing as well. I did not think that housing prices were th- that big of a contributing factor to inflation and This is also impacting the rate on credit cards, and there are a lot of people in this country, because of their salaries, are having to lean on credit cards in order to make it through the month. So it seems as though the pain that's being extracted here is being extracted from the folks, A, who can least afford to bleed, and B, a lot of folks that weren't contributing to the inflation in the first place. Hopefully that makes sense.
8: Well, well, you know, housing prices are going down because the demand for housing is going down because the cost of housing is going is
2: going up. Exactly.
8: Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, housing, housing, uh, uh, what goes on in the housing uh, market is uh, a pretty good indication of where the economy is going in terms of its its, uh, its sales and purchases into the future. housing um, um, indicators are leading indicators. And so as the housing market is slowing down, we can expect that that's going to uh, translate to a slowdown elsewhere. Now, interest rates are going up. Um, You know, interest rates are now above 6% in in mortgages. Uh, When interest rates were, let's say, 3%, not that long ago, a $200,000 house would have a mortgage payment, a thirty-year mortgage of about eight hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, now, with uh, interest rates at six percent, that 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 price has gone up to about twelve hundred dollars. Wow! And so, and so, you know, we've got a two hundred and fifty dollar a month increase um, in in the cost of that house, and 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 that two hundred and fifty dollars a month uh, for uh, someone who could just have made a uh eight hundred and fifty dollar a month uh, uh mortgage payment that, that does include uh that, um uh, taxes and, and insurance. But 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 now that extra two fifty is causing them uh folks to say we can't we can't do this. And it's also of course going to affect their applications because if they put their application in they don't have the income to support it, they can't they can't buy that house. That's that's a severe slowdown. And uh, so houses are very are very volatile and very sensitive to interest rates. Uh, but also how sales is also a leading indicator for what's going on in the rest of the economy.
0: You know, the interesting thing I'd like to ask you about this, Dr. Taheed, is that person is denied. Let's say it's twelve hundred a month. They're denied a loan for twelve hundred a month to buy the house. But then they apply for a rental property at twelve fifty a month and they're approved for the for rental property, and they end up paying more for a rental than the house that they allegedly couldn't afford. And I know of an instance of that happening for some, from someone that I know myself.
8: Yeah, about 25% of the housing stock in this country is now owned by what's called private equity. Uh, these, are, these are companies that took advantages of, of, of foreclosures, for example, uh, to buy a property to rent. And, and, and you're quite right. The rental on, on that property would be, would, is, is very likely or, or often higher than the mortgage itself. It may not be higher than the mortgage and insurance and taxes, but higher than the mortgage itself, <clears throat> which means that persons who are now paying rent are not, uh, not uh, building equity. They're not uh, saving through their house. And, and so they are in greater economic uh, distress than they would be if they were able to stay in their homes, but they can't afford them.
2: Another inflation stress, rising cost of senior living homes, strained families. Elder care facilities are raising prices and adding new fees, straining older Americans and their families who step in to help. They're hitting, they're hitting everybody at every turn
8: yeah this this increase in senior living costs is is out of out of control we're talking about an example in the story of uh, someone's uh, monthly bill being raised by $750 uh and uh, having having that happen in in, uh, in a in a facility more than once this in 2022 uh, you know, if you are a senior, you're on fixed income, you're Social Security, and maybe a pension. Um, then you know, $750 is something you can't afford. So families are having to take their their loved ones out of senior homes, uh, back to other facilities, and this particularly affects uh, persons who uh, are in who have uh, Alzheimer's or dementia, uh, because it is a tremendous stress on families to be able to take care of of, of persons. Uh, in that situation, uh, one interesting note, as I was looking through this, is that uh, there's recent evidence that Alzheimer's research, in fact, has been fraudulent. That uh, the 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 cause of, al- of Alzheimer's, uh, which was reported uh, in the, some research uh, 30 years ago, in fact, was was manufactured. And and so there's been uh, you know all kinds of Alzheimer's medications out there, but uh, but they're not they're not effective because the reason for Alzheimer's is really not understood. And so this is uh, not a, of course affecting seniors, but it's also affecting their family members. And um, one of the things that that uh, I think that people may know is that um, there is a in cost of living increase. For Social Security, that's that's based on the inflation rate. And in uh, last year and, and this year, uh, because of the high level of inflation, there's been about a 10% increase in in Social Security payments. However, that is an average Social Security or, or cost of living payment. It doesn't take into account the fact that seniors have an even greater cost of living increase, as exemplified by this by this example.
2: Uh, Dr. Taheed. Could you just um, talk a little bit about the impact that this has on the transference of wealth? Because if 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 there is an elder member of the family that now has to burn up all of their assets in order to stay in a facility, that's money that isn't being transferred to the next generation.
8: Right. Absolutely. And and uh, we, we we talked about housing. And much uh, much of the transfer of wealth uh, in this country is through housing, right? The ownership of housing being inherited by by children. Well, now if that's out of reach, uh, then then that transfer of wealth is not happening. And then we have a drawdown of savings because of, of uh, the need to uh, take care of larger. Uh, health care expenses or, or, or senior living expenses, that's not only out of the, the seniors' um, uh, wealth or savings, but it's also now drawing money out of their family's savings to be able to take care of them. And so this is not only not a, a transfer of wealth, it is a negative transfer of wealth that's occurring here.
0: Oilprice.com reports thousands of people protested against soaring electricity prices and cost of living in the Belgian capital, Brussels, on Wednesday, which also happens to be the de facto EU capital, following a similar protest the day before in Slovakia and early this month in the Czech Republic. Um, we find that, according to AP, citing a Belgian media poll, media poll, at a time when electricity and gas bills have nearly doubled from a year ago, 64 percent of Belgians of concern, are concerned they might not be able to pay their energy bills. Dr. Tahid,
8: Yeah, and, and the protests that are happening in Brussels, in Belgium, is not just uh, among Belgian citizens. Persons are coming from all over the EU to the EU capital in Brussels to, to protest. Uh, Because of high energy uh, prices, Uh, Slovakia and the Czech Republic uh, are not only are not the only countries in which there have been protests over over energy costs, and some of these countries the energy costs uh, have gone up more than double. Uh, It's a couple of interesting phenomena. There 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 is uh, at least in the Belgian case a left-right coalition that has uh, built to 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 do these protests it's not just persons on the left politically or right politically who are protesting it's 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 everyone except the middle i suppose that that's protesting these um, these uh, increased energy costs uh some of them are are not in favor of continuing the sanctions uh against russia because uh, for the for ukraine uh because of those of those energy costs and uh, it, uh there's an indication that uh this is not only of course among these uh, few countries in Europe but about a, 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 of 198 co- countries that have been surveyed uh in terms of, of situations of unrest uh the these 198 countries half of them have seen increase in in civil unrest as a result of energy uh in- increases in energy costs this is this is a worldwide phenomenon it's not simply limited to Europe.
2: And we've got Italy, led by the far right, might mean for Europe. And these protests that we're seeing in places like Belgium, I think, give an indication into what's fueling this. And uh, we have just about a minute. Your thoughts on where this is going?
8: Yeah, Italy is, is, is going to see a changeover of its government from the Mario Draghi uh, left to uh, Maloney and Salvini right. Uh, it's expected that they will they will win uh, a majority of the seats and therefore will have a right uh, government in Italy. That uh, this is the first time in Italy that we've seen a we will see a far right government since Mussolini, uh, which is which is um, um, an indication of how far right Italy is going. Italy is probably going to be further right than most countries in, in, in Europe, but other countries are also expressing, uh, seeing a rise in the far right as a result of these energy costs and the opportunity to uh, replace current leaders with with leaders who may have a different position on the sanctions. Remember Mussolini, uh, one of the things that was uh, a positive for him, if you can think of positive for fascism, is that he kept the trains running on time. And so people are, were concerned about their, the economy then, And they're concerned about the economy now.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Linwood Tahiti, He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer, Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The people of Ghana marked the birthday of Kwame Nkrumah. Also, we discussed the U.S. agenda of hegemony in Africa. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas, an author, a historian, and a researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
9: Thank you for inviting me.
0: ModernGhana.com reports that Ghanaians are marking Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Day today with a statutory public holiday. The day is set aside to remember and honor, honor Ghana's first president, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Your thoughts on that, Dr. Gerald Horn?
9: Well, it's understandable. Kwame Nkrumah uh, was the first leader of post-independence Ghana circa 1957 until he was overthrown with the complicity of the U.S. intelligence agencies in 1966. And I should also say the complicity of the then U.S. ambassador, Franklin Williams, a former high-ranking official of the NAACP. Kwame Nkrumah had been educated in the United States of America, not least at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, a historically black college. He was very close to many black Americans, including... W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson. Uh, in fact, as you know, invited W.E.B. Du Bois
8: into
9: residing in Ghana circa 1961, where he died in 1963. There is now a memorial to Du Bois and his late white Shirley Graham Du Bois, as well uh, in Ghana. Uh, there were a host of Black Americans who flocked to Ghana post 1957 and helped with nation building. But that kind of pan-Africanism ran afoul of the U.S. authorities and also ran afoul, it's fair to say, of local elites in West Africa as well. Kwame Nkrumah was a pan-Africanist insofar as he devoted considerable attention to trying to liberate the rest of the continent, uh, housing exiles from Southern Africa in particular. You may know that the founding father of modern Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, uh, met his spouse, to be known as Sally Mugabe, uh, in Ghana. She was a Ghanaian national. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah campaigned on behalf of Congolese independence. It was quite close to Patrice Lumumba, once again slain at the hands of the U.S. intelligence agencies in January 1961, an event so mundane that it was captured and put in a book by the then-CIA station chief, Larry Devlin, not Devil, but Devlin. Of uh, course, because that helps to illustrate the point writers oftentimes mention in the United States, that if you want to keep a secret, you publish it in a book. And so <laughs> it's understandable why Kwame Nkrumah is being memorialized today in Ghana. Indeed, he should be memorialized on this side of the Atlantic as well.
2: Uh, talk about a little bit about the relationship between Nkrumah and Dr. King, because I, I believe that uh, his speech, the birth of a new nation, Dr. King's speech, birth of a new nation, was based upon the the the, the liberation of Ghana. And it's also very ironic that Elizabeth II would pass uh, right before This celebration, because in in The Birth of a New Nation, King talks about the involvement of the Portuguese and the involvement of the British in colonizing the continent. Well, Dr.
9: King was relatively unique amongst the so-called mainstream leadership of the anti-Jim Crow movement. The leadership of the NAACP, as suggested a moment or two ago, oftentimes were hostile, if not neutral, (laughs) towards the idea of African liberation. I mentioned Franklin Williams, for example, the NAACP official implicated in the coup that toppled Mr. Nkrumah in early 1966. But Dr. King not only was in solidarity with Ghana, if I'm not mistaken, he arrived in Accra in March 1957, on the eve of independence, that's probably true since there was a very sizable U.S. delegation arriving at that time. And as well, in his sojourns abroad, he oftentimes was visited by anti-apartheid leaders as well, particularly in London. So I think that part of the greatness of Dr. King was that he was able to walk that tightrope that so many were unable to do. That is to say, to be involved in the mainstream of the anti-Jim Crow movement, to be, in fact, invited to meet with the U.S. president, but at the same time not turning his back upon those who were struggling against colonialism on the continent.
0: Pepe Escobar has on the thesaker.is has a great article, The Real U.S. Agenda in Africa. Forget development, Washington's primary interest in Africa today is keeping the Chinese and Russians out. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn?
9: Well, that's clear. I mean, that was made clear when Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, uh, visited Uganda and President Museveni of Uganda told one and all that... He had his own enemies. He did not need to take advice on who should be his enemies with regard to uh, joining the sanctions crusade against Russia. What's remarkable about the current moment is that you have some of the same folks who said that there was a mistake made during the Cold War when so many African leaders, aligned with the socialist camp, including the then-Soviet Union, although, of course, they didn't have many, many choices, given the fact that the North Atlantic bloc was in bed with all the retrograde forces. So when you say that the African leaders should not have been involved in the Cold War, basically, you're leaving them to the non-tender mercies of the barbarians in the North Atlantic. But now, with this new Cold War erupting, Some of those same folks are saying, "Oh no, no, Africa should join this new cold war." I'm not sure uh, what led to this 180-degree reversal. Perhaps uh, you can ask them. But in any case, uh, this situation now is more dire for the North Atlantic bloc because with their boycott of Russia, that means they're turning more towards Africa for energy. Algerian natural gas. We just saw the. New deal brokered with Nigeria and natural gas with pipelines leading thousands of miles to southern Europe, uh, titanium from South Africa, et cetera. And so, to the extent that this boycott of Russia continues, and it appears that it'll continue indefinitely, uh, not least because I'm not sure if Moscow sees these North Atlantic customers as being reliable, well, then that means that there will be more reliance upon Africa. And once again, I think that that sheds light on why in remarks not necessarily drawing attention at the United Nations made by President Biden, uh, he opened the door to African representation at the top table as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. I think that on the one hand, it reflects a certain kind of weakness of the North Atlantic countries, they feel they need backup to confront the Moscow-Beijing axis, supplemented by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And it also is a bid to try to solidify the control or at least access to the vast and ample natural resources of Africa. Uh, We shall see what unfolds, although if I were a betting man, uh, I would be pessimistic about the chances of the North Atlantic countries to gain a stranglehold over these natural resources as if this were 1966 and the Nkrumah coup all over again.
2: The real U.S. agenda in Africa is hegemony. One could also argue that the real U.S. agenda in Europe is hegemony, as there are many who will argue that the real motivations behind the United States right now uh, in Europe is to destabilize the, the EU economy so that the United States can uh, uh, have many of those businesses and industries either be bought by American interests or moved to the United States and, of course, have Europe move away from Russia as its energy source and start buying its natural gas from the United States? Well,
9: unfortunately, we're not on camera. If we were, I could turn my camera to the streets of Houston and you would see energy executives literally dancing in the streets at the prospect of controlling the liquefied natural gas market uh, to Germany in particular. Uh, I should add the important footnote is that the region where this liquefied natural gas is being exported from, speaking of the corridor leading from southeast Texas into Louisiana, you've had a number of explosions of late uh, at these port facilities, although there has not been keen reportage of what went into that and what it really suggests. But I would uh, make the prophecy that it's not necessarily good news for the people in this part of North America the problem for these Western European countries is that they basically play a bad hand. They relied and have relied upon U.S. imperialism as the ultimate guarantor for world imperialism, uh, helping the Western European countries and facilitating the Western European countries' uh, exploitation of Africa, Asia, and Latin America and the Caribbean. But I think they might have underestimated the cowboy element uh, in Washington. They may not have gauged properly the toxic import of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, dominated by the United States of America. And so they were not able to mount a sufficient offensive to block NATO from creeping ever closer to the borders of Russia which had a predictable outcome in ukraine as we speak and in any case uh, given the fact that one of the major u.s bases on planet earth the rammstein base in germany uh, is dominated by the pentagon a question can be raised about the ultimate sovereignty of the state headquartered in berlin 82 million strong and certainly with the disruption of energy supplies from Russia, the fact that Washington now is trying to engage in double containment, to use their phrase, that is to say, containing not only Russia but China, China being one of the major markets of Germany, particularly Volkswagen, it seems as if Germany is on an uncontrolled roller coaster ride, uh, heading towards a dangerous hairpin turn. And in that regard, I should mention a startling piece that appears in the current issue of The Economist, the British Conservative Weekly, which rehearses and disinters the 1945 argument by Mr. Morgenthau of the United States in surveying the barren German landscape after being devastated during World War II. Uh, He suggested that the land should lay foul and that Germany should not be allowed to re-industrialize. Apparently, that's what's happening today. And given the antagonism historically between London and Berlin, I should not have been shocked by the fact that the economist was not shocked by the prospect of the old Morgenthau plan being excavated and stood up.
0: (laughs) We've been listening to Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Texas. He's a historian, researcher, author of many books. You can go online wherever books are sold. I would suggest my favorite, which is his book about Paul Robeson. You have been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out.